Please take your Bibles this evening and turn again to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation uh, chapter 1. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in your word as that which is of the ultimate value. Lord, it brings us light, it gives us joy, it revives our hearts. We pray you'd make it so this evening by the power of your spirit, that your word would be to us an everlasting lamp to our feet and light to our path. Lord, inscribe your law upon our hearts and grant us to rejoice in them as in great riches. We pray through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. About 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I were able to do something that we haven't done since and probably won't do in the foreseeable future, but through an odd set of circumstances, we were able to go on a cruise by ourselves. At that time, we only had three children, and uh, it was a great time. And uh, with one caveat to it, one thing I noticed upon entering the ship was that we were the youngest people by several decades on it. <laughs> and apparently that was obvious not just to me, but to others. And so we came back to our cabin, and there we found an invitation to dine with the captain. Now, we were nobodies from nowhere. And, uh, of course, we took the invitation, which meant you came into the main dining hall, and you, you paraded in with all the ship's officers. And so... Uh, you sit at the center table, and it's, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, but what I found in the evening was I was sitting across from the ship's engineer, and he was a little older than me, but we both had an engineering background, and we were talking through the ins and outs of it, and they were all, the company officers or ship's officers, were all from Greece. And as the, the evening wore on, I said, well, you know, I've always heard of Greece, never been there, but always heard of the fabled Mediterranean vacation. And I said, if you just had a week to go anywhere in Greece for that vacation, where would you go? And without a moment's hesitation, he said to me, Patmos. And I said, Patmos? And he said, yes, you know where St. John wrote the Apocalypse. And of course, I was shocked. I didn't even think Greek people like read the Bible or anything. And <laughs> Uh, he was sort of annoyed at my response, but he then went on enthusiastically to just describe pristine beaches. He said there was a little religious tourism, but it hadn't been spoiled like the other Greek islands by tourism. He said the prices were reasonable, the food was good, and you could enjoy a leisurely time on Patmos. Years later, I, I looked it up, and uh, Forbes magazine had at one point said that Patmos was the most idyllic place to live in Europe. I thought it so ironic that the place of leisure, the ideal place uh, to find recreation and rest and recovery was for the Apostle John a, a place of great trial, a place of great suffering, a place of great torment. And that's where our text begins because 2,000 years ago, Patmos wasn't the most idyllic place to live in Europe. It was sort of the Australia of the Aegean. It was a, 
a place of exile. It was a place they sent the penal colony where they sent those who troubled the Roman Empire in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And the settings are, are rather bleak for John. He describes it as was read in verse 9 as a fellow partaker in the tribulation. And so the tribulation for John was not something way out there distant in the future, but it was the current experience of the great apostle. The word compression in the Greek, or, or the word tribulation in the Greek rather means compression. And so perhaps a way to describe it is that the circumstances that he was experiencing felt like a, a pressure from all sides. When I was a child, my father was the consummate do-it-yourselfer, and in our garage he had an enormous workbench, and at the end of the workbench he had an enormous industrial size Sears Craftsman red vice. And so he would put items in the vice and it would hold them still, and when he was gone I would crush things in them. And I derived a lot of joy from that, but that's the word, that's the word tribulation. It's the, the place of no options, the place of no uh, egress, you can't escape, is pressure on all sides. That's John's description, and so it's the vice of ministry, the vice of persecution, the vice of the place of no options. Why? Why was John on Patmos? Well, you don't have to guess. There in verse 9, he gives you two reasons, the first of which was his commitment to the word of God. John, as were all the preachers, or rather all the apostles were preachers, and as was their master was a preacher, so he was. And his commitment to declaring truth in a world that did not tolerate truth, that was characterized by a satanic hatred of truth, he found himself in trouble. And particularly, what truth did he hold up? The testimony of Jesus Christ. John was loyal to the Lord Jesus and identified with him. And as such, he obviously proclaimed that this one, the Jesus of Nazareth, who seemed like assumed by many just to be a, a peasant rabble-rouser, was none other than the Davidic king. That he was the great, long-awaited Messiah. And undoubtedly, he would preach about Jesus' miraculous birth, his eternal pre-existence, the union between the human and the divine, and how the divine didn't counsel out the the human and how the, the human didn't counsel out the divine, but they're in perfect union in his person. And preach of his or te, preach and teach about his miracles, his extraordinary authoritative preaching to, to explain how he was rejected by the religious leadership, how he was crucified, the meaning of the cross, his resurrection, and his current reign. And for that, the apostle John found himself on the Isle of Patmos. An older commentator, James Ramsey, who wrote for the Banner of Truth half a commentary in the book of Revelation in Princeton in the 19th century, says that he was placed on Patmos because of his refusal to burn incense to the emperor Domitian. In fact, Jerome and Irenaeus and Origen, early church fathers, claimed that John was on the Isle of Patmos in the last, uh, last decade of the, uh, the first century. And so perhaps by now, John is the last of the apostles. Uh, one by one, they have died or been martyred. And 
And here he is. Several decades after the ascension of Jesus, after the death of the Apostle Paul, a generation of Christians have come and gone. He's seen Christianity shift. For after Titus, the older brother of Domitian, he raised Jerusalem in 70 AD. Christianity moved fundamentally from Palestine and being Jewish to being Gentile in the western part of Turkey in these seven churches. And so Christianity had grown. It had grown steadily in spite of the opposition by a pagan decadent society. And now the seven churches that you can read about there in chapters 2 and 3, they're languishing. They're feeble, they're weak, they're the victims, some, of persecution, of spiritual lethargy and compromise. They're in various stages of decline, or static at least. And John's marooned on Patmos as perhaps the last of the apostles. He knows that Jesus has promised to return. Verse 7 makes that clear. But in the meantime, he's called to perseverance. And that's not some stoic indifference, but it's the holy, courageous perseverance of the saints. And so where is hope in the middle of John's suffering? Where is Jesus in the middle of the trouble that he's facing? Well, it's important to ask the question, what what is John doing in this terrible circumstance? What do we find him doing? Well, notice verse 10. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. When nobody's watching, when perhaps the other prisoners don't understand what he's doing, when it would seem like it didn't matter or was absurd or no one seems to care, John's just like you this evening. He's worshiping the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, showing for many in the American church that the fourth commandment is still very valid. The essence of it is the same, a day of rest, a day of worship, shifting only because of the resurrection of Christ to the first day of the week. And so in the time of crisis, in the time of suffering, what's John's priority? Well, he's worshiping. In the Lord's day, it's here that eternal realities are brought to bear in the temporal world. It's here that you're reminded of all that is essential and necessary to grow as a believer. And so in this isolation, everything in John's experience, everything in John's circumstances is undoubtedly attacking his faith, particularly that wonderful phrase where he says there in verse 5, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Everything is attacking that reality. It would seem that Domitian, the Roman emperor, is the king of the earth. And so it's here that John is reacquainted with Jesus. Not the Jesus he remembered and the Jesus as he is. And so behold Jesus as he is. Verse 13, he's found in the middle of lampstands, one like a son of man or the son of man. There's some resemblances to what he remembered in Jesus' earthly ministry, perhaps even at his ascension. There's an astonishing resemblance, but he's no longer humiliated. He's, He's like the son of man, and his clothing there in verse 13 is that perhaps of a priest, the commentators think. 
He's doing the priestly duties for the church. It's astonishing clothing. There is 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 uh, profound and beautiful and radiant. He he is uh, his hair, which would point you to the, the the Daniel prophecy. Daniel seven nine is white like wool, bleached white. His eyes, they say, are like a fire, perhaps representing his omniscience or his holiness or his wrath. We we find his feet are like molten metal that have come out of a furnace. When I was uh, a young man, my father took me to uh, what's called the Alabama uh, Cast Iron Pipe Company. Birmingham, where I grew up at one time, had been a big steel uh, industry there, but all that was left was this cast iron pipe company, and he was an engineer himself, and he wanted to uh, they gave a tour, and there they had just bought all this fancy new equipment in the 80s from, of all places, Italy. And there I saw them pour the molten iron into a form, and you, you saw it, the liquid, the heat, you could feel it even at a great distance, even with safety glasses on. You saw it put on a conveyor belt in enormous blocks as it was red hot, and then how it was pounded out through machines to lengthen it. And the thing I walked away from that event was just sort of the power of that molten metal. And here Jesus' feet are said to be like that, that he could perhaps meaning stomping on all of his enemies, those who threaten him in his voice. His voice was like the, the, the Niagara Falls in all of its uh, volume per making it very clear his authority that his words are like a sword. They pierce his great prophetic office. His face is like staring at the sun in all of its brilliance. And so John's discouraged. John is suffering. John is doing his duty. He's worshiping the Lord. His faith, perhaps beaten, is not lost. And he needs Christ. And where is Jesus? Well, he's right behind him. That's what the text says. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Jesus was right behind him. He wasn't far from him. And John doesn't have, you know, the language to quantify. He doesn't have the categories to explain his vision. He uses the word like seven times there. He, he explains it's like natural phenomenon. They're metaphors to explain the exalted nature of Jesus. It's the best he can do is to compare it to physical phenomenon in his own experience and in the audience experience. And so what's the meaning? It's obvious. It's meant to convey to John the power, the sovereignty, the holiness, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is invincible to the enemies of the church, to his calls, and to his holy name. The vision's not lost on John. Notice there he, he falls down like a dead man. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fought his feet like a dead man. And it's important to step back and think about that for a moment. John was, as he describes in his own gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a close relationship with Jesus. In fact, the, the German commentator from the 
18th century, Bingle described Peter, James, and John as the electi electorum, the elect of the elect. They were the inner circle. Those were the ones that had very uh, prominent access to Jesus in his humiliation, in his earthly ministry that very few others had. He was the one who had the highest privilege at the institution of the Lord's Supper. He was next to Christ, laid his head on his chest, whatever that means. There was great intimacy and closeness between Jesus. But when he sees him as he is in his glory, he falls down as a dead man. He's in shock. But the vision's not meant to kill John. The vision is meant to comfort him and to comfort all those who are in his cause, to comfort the church, to comfort you this, this evening. So where's the church in this vision? Well, you see it there in verses 12 and 13. Jesus is in the middle of the, the golden lampstands. In other words, he's in the middle of the churches. The churches are defined. The vision is interpreted for you. In verse 20, those are the seven churches, Sardis and Pergamum and Thyatira. Real churches with real leaders, with real elders, with real pastors, with real doctrine, with real problems. And so the church is precious to Jesus. That's the point of this vision. He's not abandoned his church. He's in the middle of it. Churches that struggle. Why? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I will go and make, y'all, you, you go and make disciples. He's put all things under his feet and given him head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, he's purchased the church, his bride with his own blood in Acts 20, 28. It's his precious possession and his consummate promise there in Matthew 16. Jesus will build his church and he's true to his promises. Even weak churches, flawed churches, churches that have defects, he's not abandoned his calls. And though Jesus is unseen, he's exalted in the middle of his people. And so what's the message for you this evening? There's a lot going on in the church today. Uh, inside the church, you See, even in our own denomination, moral failure, you see uh, doctrinal compromise, you see sort of bizarre positions being bandied about time and again. Uh, you see uh, you know, sort of a crisis of leadership. Uh, what to do? Uh, we, we find that finances are difficult. It uh, seems the culture is turning on the church everywhere you look. What to do? Are we left alone? Are you abandoned? No, you're not. It would seem that John is abandoned on the island of Patmos all by himself. They're worshiping on the Lord's day, but Christ is right behind him. He's near him. He's not left him nor forsaken him. And so this vision has great import. Jesus in verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he amplifies this in verses 17 and 18 there he says uh, he placed his hand on John he revives him and gives him the command do not be afraid I am the first and the last the living one and I was dead and behold I'm alive 
forevermore. And I have the keys to sin and death. The command there in verse 17, James Ramsey in his commentary says is the, uh, is the purpose of the book of Revelation. There's a lot of imagery there that's very difficult to interpret, no matter your eschatological position. But the practical takeaway from it is confidence and certainty that Jesus in all of his glory and all of his power is reigning. He's not oblivious to the trials the church is experiencing. He is right there in the middle of the church, and so the church is commanded not to fear. And the solution to fear is faith in the ascended, raised, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. So here in the early part of the 21st century, there's a, quite a bit to be afraid of. I'm personally not looking forward to the election season here later this year. The economy seems to be on borrowed time from my perspective. I hate to be a downer. Uh, chaos at the border, social disintegration, political persecution for the church. It would seem sort of a, a hopeless, hopeless situation But into all of that, the eyes of faith are called to to fear not. Ramsey says in his commentary, whatever it is that causes you to fear or faint, look up and behold your glorified Redeemer as he appeared to John, rest in his constant presence and his vast glory. Jesus, he's the first and the last And he is one that commands his church to be steadfast, to endure, to wait patient for him in the middle of suffering, in the middle of trouble, and to wait patiently on him. John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, writes this about these verses. He says, let the world rage while it pleases. Let it set itself with all its power and craft against everything of Christ that is in it which despite what is pretended proceeds from a hatred of his person. Let men make themselves drunk on the blood of the saints. We have this to oppose all their attempts. For our support, namely what he says of himself, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death. In Hades. What did John need? John, the last of the apostles, this ancient saint who had saw so much, he needed reassurance of the exalted control of Jesus Christ. What does the church need today? The church needs to recover, it seems to me, this same conviction that's laid out so clearly for us in Scripture. Jesus is in control in all of his glory, in all of his wisdom, in all of his generosity, mercy, and kindness, and holiness. That's what the church needs. Undoubtedly, that is what you need. Certainty that as we wait patiently for his return, that by faith we affirm with the Apostle John that our exalted Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he is orchestrating all of human history, all of the events that we experience for the sake of his bride to bring her safely home to himself 
Faith rests in that which is unseen. John was granted this vision by sight, and it undid him. You were called this night to rest in faith in him who is exalted at the right hand of God, who is caring for his church in North America as he did a long time ago in Turkey. So for you, the church this evening, reflect upon the glory of Christ and don't fear. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this revelation of your son. Please strengthen and buttress our faith and his control in the years to come. Please give us renewed confidence that our Lord Jesus is in the middle of his church still, building it for his own glory. Oh, Father, grant us that steadfast courage that we would not fear and that we would finish well for your glory, we ask in Christ's name.